And let's pray again together. Sovereign God, we praise you for your holy scripture. Lord, we praise you that in your scripture we see truth. We praise you that in your scripture we see you. And Lord, as I I consider my responsibility here this morning, Lord, I I realize that on my own I'm, I'm woefully inadequate to communicate these things. Let alone for me or anyone here among us to believe these things. Father, I'm confident in the power of your Holy Spirit that you will work in the hearts of your people, that your people will hear your word and believe your word. Lord Jesus, we praise you that your people hear your voice. We pray, triune God, that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would hear your voice, that we would respond with faith. Grant us faith, I pray. We ask this in the sovereign name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. What have you seen in your lifetime that makes you rejoice? I could think of several things in my own life, and you know, here in chronological order, seeing seeing the, the leaves in their autumn splendor in the Gatineau Hills growing up seeing the wonder of the Great Barrier Reef, seeing Jane walk down the aisle, seeing the birth of my children, seeing the church gathered together on this Sunday morning. And I can't see you in the gym, but I I trust you're gathered there as well. I look forward to the time when we'll all be able to gather again as one body in this one room. And all of these things that, that, that I have seen make me rejoice. And they should make me rejoice. These things are blessings from God. But these things, as Christians, we see primarily not with our natural eyes. Many of these things that natural people can see as, as, part, of their, their, as part of common grace. But for us as Christians, we rejoice even that more greatly because we don't see these things just with natural eyes, but with the eyes of faith. In fact, what should bring us ultimate joy is that which we cannot see with our natural eyes. In fact, our our greatest rejoicing comes in the things that we can only see with the eyes of faith. Last week we saw how Jesus took an additional group of disciples, not the 12, uh, another group, and sent them out. And there's either 70 or 72 others. The, the manuscripts are divided on this, but we'll assume for simplicity's sake that it's 72. And Jesus sent this, these 72 disciples out into the, the region, into the towns of Judea that he was about to travel to. And he sent them, we're told, to to go in preparation for his arrival. Jesus sent them out ahead of him in order to prepare them for his coming ministry as he was on the road to Jerusalem. Remember, he did not just take the the direct route to Jerusalem. 
He took a very circuitous route to Jerusalem because he had ministry that he wanted to engage in on that road. Jesus gave these disciples very clear instructions on how they were to prepare and how they were to conduct, conduct themselves in the towns to which they went. Remember we saw that, that the Lord of the harvest, Jesus Christ, is sending laborers out into the harvest, out in the fields that are white and ready for the harvest. And so when they were welcomed, they were to heal the sick and to proclaim the kingdom of God. But Jesus wasn't, it all wasn't going to be sunshine and lollipops and rainbows. Jesus was also sending them out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And so when the disciples encountered this kind of, of opposition, when they were rejected, when their, mes their message was rejected, they were to take off their sandal and shake out the dust of their feet as a testimony against that town. But remember, we saw that they still had the same message. Even to those people who rejected them and rejected their message, they were still to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. They still got the same message. And Jesus, remember, then pronounced woes on the cities in Galilee that had been so privileged to see the miracles and to hear his teaching, but had rejected them, rejected him anyway. The, the, the vast majority of the, of the people in, in these cities, in, in Chorazin, in, in Capernaum, in Bethsaida, had rejected Jesus because they did not see Jesus with the eyes of faith. They only saw Jesus with natural eyes. And so now, after an undisclosed period, the 72 return with a missions report. Now that, that's, that's common practice. When, when, when a church sends a group out with, on a, on a short-term missions trip, they will come back and they'll give a report on that trip to the elders and then to the church. And these 72 are returning with a missions report to Jesus. And we're told that they're coming back full of joy for what has happened in their ministry. It appears that the ministry was a success. However, Jesus offers a, a corrective to their thinking. There's nothing wrong with rejoicing over success per se as long as your rejoicing is not grounded on apparent success. Jesus does want them to rejoice, but not just on what they've experienced and on what they've done and what they've seen with their natural eyes, but to rejoice in something far greater, something that can only be seen with the eyes of faith. So this morning, we're going to see that disciples are to have, in verses 17 to 20, that they are to have eyes to see, you are to have eyes to see your salvation. And then in verses 21 and 22, you are to have eyes to see God's revelation. And then in verses 23 and 24, you, have, you are to have eyes to see Christ's benediction. So first of all, in, we see, we're to, you are to have eyes to see your salvation, verses 17 to 20. Again, we're not told how much time has, has elapsed, but the 72 return with joy. Neither, again, are we told everything that happened during this mission trip, but Luke tells us what they see as a highlight. They say, Lord, 
even the demons are subject to us in your name. So their, their ministry and their message had been apparently met with widespread acceptance. The demonic forces submitted to the disciples' ministry in the authority of Jesus. And notice that it is not their authority, but his. It says that they said it's in your name that the demons are subject to us. It's his authority, not theirs. But even still, none of us have ever cast out a demon. I can imagine feeling pretty elated about casting out a demon. Finally, this is the moment we've been waiting for. Finally, some good news. Finally, after all of those blunders, after all those things, that the, 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 all these errors that the disciples had made and, and all of these sinful judgments that they had made, sinful judgments about Jesus, sinful judgments about, about each other, sinful judgments about, about those who were, were outside of their particular band, sinful judgment against their, their supposed enemies. We're finally getting some good news. Finally, we, we're hearing something positive being done by those Jesus had sent out. Not so fast. Not is all as rosy as it appears. Verse 18. Jesus replies, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now several Notable commentators throughout church history interpret Jesus saying here something along the lines of, I saw Satan fall from heaven because of the same sin you are committing. Because of the sin of pride. Now, while that is a possible interpretation based on the wider context, I'm really not sure that, that it is the best one here. And of course, we can't really know for certain, but Jesus says in the very next verse that he has given them authority over all the power of the enemy and then tells them to rejoice immediately after that again. So the, the tenor of this, the tone of this, is, is something that doesn't seem to be as stiff a rebuke as saying, you're like Satan. It seems to me that, that Jesus is actually saying something different here, that this is, this is more of a tweak. This is more of an adjustment than a stiff rebuke. We'll be told in the, in the next verse after he tells them to rejoice that he himself is rejoicing. But still, there is a correction here. There's a correction here. More on that in a moment. This is the first mention of Satan by name in Luke's gospel account. The name being taken from the Hebrew word for adversary. Satan is the chief of the, the demonic forces set against God. He is the tempter and he is the accuser. And Jesus says that, that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So then the question we need to ask is, well, when did Satan fall from heaven? Was his fall primordial at the, the beginning of time? Was his fall when, when Jesus overcame Satan's temptation in the wilderness? Was his fall during the successful ministry of the 72? Was his fall at the cross? Was his fall at the final judgment when he'll be cast into the lake of fire? Yes, 
all of the above, that they're all true. They're all true. While we usually, while we usually think of, of associate the Satan's defeat with, with the cross or with final judgment, Satan has defeated past, present, and future. He, he was defeated by the entire ministry of Christ. He continues to be defeated by the ministry of Christ's followers. And he will be defeated by Christ at Christ's return. And this is all the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, where the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. In this particular context, it applies directly to the disciples of Christ. Satan suffers a crushing defeat at the proclamation of the gospel. As the kingdom of God advance, advances, a major blow is dealt to the kingdom of darkness. And that's not just for those disciples. It wasn't just for the twelve. It's not just for these seventy-two, but it's for you. This also applies to you and your ministry. Brothers and sisters, you will not know this side of glory. What God is doing in and through you to advance his kingdom. You don't know but that, that little word that you say to somebody can be used of God to bring that person to saving faith. Or to encourage a, a downhearted brother or sister. Or, or to correct somebody's wrong thinking about God and, and what he's doing in the world. And by your actions, you have no idea what an encouragement it is to other people, to other Christians, when you live a life that is centered on the gospel. When you, by God's grace, Seek to, to walk in faith and obedience to God, loving Him and loving His people. I mean, I get a glimpse of that as I, as I talk with you. I, I get to, to hear what, what, you, what God is doing in you and, and through you, and I get encouraged. It's a blessing to me. You are, you are buoying me up in my ministry as, as I hear what you are doing through your ministry. But it's not until... That day, when, when all is revealed, that you will really see all that you have done for the glory of God by his grace. Jesus continues in verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. <clears throat> now, that's a good thing. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's, you should rejoice over the authority that you have been given. This is, this is, this is a great blessing from God, and we, we should rejoice in these things. And notice here that, that Jesus says, I have given you authority. You can see this more clearly um, in, in Greek. The, the, the verb here is in the perfect tense. So what that means is that, that, that Jesus' authority was given in the past and has results that continue into the present. The, the authority was given to them in the past, and the authority continues. And the same is true for you and me, that, that we have been given authority by Jesus, and that authority continues right now in this present moment. 
Jesus has given, has given them and us authority over all the power of the enemy. Now, it doesn't look the same in, in our lives living here as we do in this particular epoch, but as it did in, in that original time when, when there was just such, again, if you, as, you, as you track through the, the redemption history, you'll see that there were, there were clear times, we talked about this at the beginning of Luke, when, when there was really a, a strong, um, there was a lot of, of demonic activity, and there was a lot of, of visible demonic activity and a lot of, of visible, visible miraculous work from God. But this has not been consistent throughout redemption history. There's been high points, mountain peaks throughout redemption history where these things have been particularly evident. And obviously during the ministry of Christ and his followers, this was one of those times. And so he says to them that none that, that they've given authority over all the power of the enemy, that, that Satan himself could not prevail against them. And, and so when he talks about serpents and scorpions, they represent hostile forces that are set against God and his people. Jesus' point is that the forces of darkness are unable to harm the Lord's servants before their time. Now we think about this in the, in the life and the lives of, of of even the, the first disciples. We, we see that, that many of them were actually killed. In fact, all of them, uh, apart from, from John, were, were, were martyred. And John was exiled to Patmos. What Jesus is saying is the, the enemy cannot harm you until your time is up. You are invincible until your work on earth is done. Nothing can hurt you apart from that which God allows. And he has decreed that in the lives of those who love him and are called, into his purpose, called according to his purpose, that all things will work together for their good and ultimately for his glory. Now we do see an example of, 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 of this something taking place like this where, where the Apostle Paul in Acts 28 is, is bitten on the hand by a, by a viper, by a venomous serpent that comes out of the, the log that he's throwing into the fire. And remember, the, he just survived the shipwreck, and people said, well, he must be a really bad guy because, because he, he survived a shipwreck, and now he's been bitten by this poison, poison snake. He's about to die. But he shakes off the snake and throws it into the fire. Completely unharmed. So there is an example of this taking place in the life of the Apostle Paul. But just because the Apostle Paul will suffer no ill effects does not, mean, does not mean that you can do the same thing. It doesn't mean that you're told to, to grab hold of, of venomous serpents. Jesus is not advocating that you move to the United States and join an Appalachian snake-handling cult. There's such a thing. Similarly, I, I question the wisdom of of participating in extreme sports. I mean, some would continue to consider bike riding an extreme sport. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about the really extreme, dangerous sports where you're, you're putting your life in jeopardy. It's not wise. It's, you're, you're willfully putting yourself in harm's way. So you can't take a verse like this and say, well, well I could just do whatever I want to do and know that God will protect me. We are rather to seek to preserve our lives while trusting in God's providence. That's part of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Like the Lord's response to Satan's temptation to, to throw himself down from the, the temple, 
says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Luke 4, 12. But now Jesus gets to the main point. Now he gets to, to the main thing that he wants to teach the disciples here in verse 20. Now he tells the 72 what he really wants them to rejoice in. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's saying essentially this, even, even though you have authority over demonic forces, and even though that's a blessing, I don't want you to continue rejoicing in that. Rather, I want you to continue to rejoice in the fact that you are saved. That is something to continue to rejoice about. This is, this is the correction that we're talking about. It's, it's not that it's, it's wrong. It's not that it's wrong to rejoice in the gifts of God, but, but Jesus is calling his people to a greater joy. God is calling you to a greater joy. People tend to focus on, on experiences and on abilities and, and successes. But the problem with that is that there are always peaks and valleys to the Christian experience. We saw that with the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? They, they, they experienced the high point of the Mount of, the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing, seeing Jesus' glory revealed, hearing the voice of God the Father. And then with the rest of chapter 9, the things we, alluded, we talked about earlier, they, they continued to, to stumble and fall. There's always peaks and valleys. That's part of the Christian life. I'm sure you've seen that in your own life. I'm sure you've experienced peaks and valleys. So, some of you here perhaps have, have experienced deep valleys even in this past week. And others have experienced great peaks in this past week. Some have experienced both, maybe many times. If you focus on experience, you'll be focused on the ups and downs. And so when things go well, you'll be thinking that God is for you. And when things go poorly, you'll be thinking that God is against you. Imagine if the Apostle Paul had that perspective with all that he suffered. He would have drawn some very wrong conclusions about who God is and who he was before God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a former medical doctor um, and great preacher, one of my favorite preachers. He, he approaches life and approaches the human condition as a master diagnostician. They, they, they call Martin Lloyd-Jones the doctor. And the doctor saw Christians who were elated at times and then depressed at others. He saw them joyful, and then he saw them unhappy, and he saw them pinball back and forth between two extremes. And he explained that people display steady, unsteadiness in the Christian life because they tend to focus, as he says, on the fruit rather than the life that produces the fruit. He says they, they tend to focus on the symptoms rather than the disease, on the outward rather than the inward on manifestations rather than principles, on the spectacular rather than the real world. 
It's already saying that, that people are evaluating life through natural eyes. Through natural eyes. And there is great danger. There's great danger in seeing your gifts and assuming that you are on the right track spiritually. Because it can be very difficult to distinguish between natural gifts and spiritual gifts. Listen. Don't be satisfied. Don't be satisfied to be intellectual and eloquent and doctrinally astute or any other external thing. Because you can possess any or all of those things and lack saving faith. You can resemble Augustine in your apologetics, Whitfield in your witnessing, the seraphim in your singing, Peter in your power, Paul in your preaching. You can even be stoned like Stephen, but you can be as sinful as Saul as judged as Jezebel, as condemned as Cain. Be careful. Do not be led to conclude that God is working in you because of natural gifts. In fact, don't be consumed with a focus on gifts at all. This is especially true in our day of the so-called charismatic gifts. It's easy to speak in tongues. It's easy to pretend to prophesy without the Holy Spirit. You can appear to others to have life and to have it abundantly, but be as dead as a doornail. I've known some very gifted people who proved to be unregenerate. There have been several that we've seen in, in the public sphere in the last few years. Men whose, whose books I've read, books I've been blessed by, that have proved themselves to be apostate. Now, thankfully, that's the minority. But be very, very careful not to look with natural eyes, but to look instead with the eyes of faith. What a tragedy to be among the disobedient who will come to Jesus on that last day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name only to have Jesus declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Think about Judas. Judas was displaying the same gifts. He was doing a lot of the same things that the other disciples were doing. In fact, he was doing this so much that even when, it came, even when Jesus announced that he's going to, that one of them among them is going, to, is going to betray him, even then they didn't know that it was Judas. Even after he had left, they still didn't understand. Do not focus on gifts. Do not focus on looking through your natural eyes. Look instead through the eyes of faith. It is far better to have grace without gifts than gifts without the gift of grace. Add to that the, that the deadly danger of pride. Pride is, is enough of a danger in the life of the regenerate person. 
But in the unregenerate, it is a poison that pollutes the entire life. In the unbeliever, especially the gifted unbeliever, pride is, is an offensive stench that they exude as soon as they enter a room. Now, they might be able to mask it at times, but it's still there nonetheless. And even the, the so-called great things that, they, that the prideful, unregenerate person does are not for God's glory, they are for their glory. And brothers and sisters, if you are at all self-examining, you know that you also are full of pride. I am full of pride. But the Christian battles, excuse me, battles pride or should be battling pride on a daily basis. The Christian knows that, that his or her pride is, to be, is an insidious and a deadly enemy. And so we fight. But we're not left to fight alone. We're able to fight pride using the means that God has given us in the strength that he provides. So then, Jesus tells his disciples not to rejoice in temporal things. Don't rejoice in temporal things. Rejoice in eternal things. This is a, a, an excellent corrective to pride. When you look at, at life through the eyes of faith and you see eternity and your eternal state, you realize that it's all a gift from God and that you brought nothing to the table except the sin that made your salvation necessary. It sticks a pin in your balloon of pride. May we be like pin cushions constantly sticking those pins into our pride. So the disciples are not to rejoice in temporal things. But, but that does not mean that the Christian is, is dreary and depressed. Far from it, the, the Christian is full of joy and full of joy at the right things. He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Eternity cultivates humility. Keeping your eyes on eternity is a strong antidote, again, against pride. It helps you to see that, that the only things that you have of any value, especially your salvation, is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Far more important than temporal power is what happens to you when you die. Brothers and sisters, your name is in the book of life. Your name is in the book of life, and it is written with the indelible ink of the blood of Jesus Christ. Your name can never be blotted out of God's God knows you personally. God knows you intimately. God still saved you. Not because of you, but because of Christ. Not because God thought, 
I want that guy or that woman on my team. It's because you are, I am, one of the foolish things of the world that confounds the wise. God chose you to be a trophy of his grace, and he gets all the glory. God knows you personally, and God knows you intimately, and God has granted you eternal life and fullness of joy in his presence and pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. But for those whose names are not written in the book of life, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20:15. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, and morning breaks eternal bright and fair, when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore and the roll is called up yonder, will you be there? On that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and his, the glory of his resurrection share, when his chosen ones shall gather on their home beyond the skies, when the roll is called up yonder, will you be there? Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is my prayer for you. From Ephesians 1.18, that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? My prayer for you is that, that God, will, I prayed for you by name this week. That God will open the eyes of your hearts. That you will see this glorious inheritance that he has given you in Jesus Christ. Christians are given victory over the powers of darkness. Nevertheless, Christians should ultimately rejoice in their salvation. It takes faith to see this. It takes faith to see this. You, you can see your gifts, but gifts of grace are not so readily identifiable. You can see victory with your natural eyes, but to see spiritual victory, to see the hope that you have in heaven, it takes the eyes of faith. You can only see heaven with the eyes of faith. And so rejoice in what you see with the eyes of faith. Now, I was going to continue in verses 21 to 24, um, but I'm only about halfway through what I wanted to get through this morning, and, and I, I don't want to... I don't want to make you fall asleep because I want you to hear the things that are, that are really important for you to hear in, this, in this, these next four verses as well. So, so I'm going to, to cut it a little bit short here. But I, I want you, God wants you to see all that he has given you in Jesus Christ. God wants you to see the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. God wants you to look with the eyes of faith, as we'll see next week. He has also given you. So that you can see as he sees. So that you can see life, this life, from an eternal perspective. So you can get, get the, the God's eye view of your life, of what, what God is doing in you and around you for his glory, that you will not be consumed by, by the minutia of what is taking place here and now. But you'll understand who God is 
and all that he is doing for his glory and for your good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your amazing grace. Lord, we deserve your wrath poured out upon us for all eternity. Yet, Lord, in your sovereign grace, you have made us the objects of your grace. You have granted us salvation in Jesus Christ as he was punished in our place. As he bore the wrath that we deserve. Lord, help us to know and help us to rejoice in the fact that as John Newton said, I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And through meditation on this glorious truth, may our rejoicing redound for your glory. May our hearts and our lives be transformed as we meditate on this truth. Till Christ is formed in us. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.